You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Mark 11 is where we're going to be today. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, that would be really helpful to have that out and open on your lap. Mark chapter 11. And so uh, we're in a set of sermons through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week we waded into chapter 12. And, the fir- and in particular, the first 12 verses. Um, it's a parable. Um, it would fit into the judgment parables, kind of that, that genre of parables. And it just happened to fall on Mother's Day of all days to talk about that one. And so my plan was to go ahead and keep pressing forward in Mark and uh, kind of pick up the next passage in Mark 12. But, uh, but I have not been able to get away from the end of Mark 11. So I actually want to come back to the last little section of Mark 11 and, uh, and work through a couple of, of, I preached through this section. And I think a lot of this was born out of five or six years ago, I listened to a guy preach through this section of the Bible. And, uh, and, and in one particular sermon in this, in this passage we're going to be looking at today, just landed on me in a big way five or six years ago. And so in some ways, I just kind of want to turn that back on you um, today and, uh, and give you a piece of that um, from five or six years ago. And so this is Mark chapter 11. Now, let me give you the context. We're in the last section of Mark 11. So you see it there. This is where the Pharisees are about to question the authority of Jesus and the religious leaders. So let me kind of back up and give some context. And this, by the way, this uh, sermon's going to be a little bit different in the sense that it's going to take me about 10 minutes to explain the big idea that I want you to feel and see today. And then we're going to spend about 30 minutes working through applying that to our lives. So it's going to be really heavy on the application uh, side of things this morning. Okay, so Gospel of Mark. Think about the entire context of the book of Mark. It's about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And one of the most interesting things to observe throughout, uh, you know, the 16 chapters that make up the book is how the different people in Mark uh, respond to Jesus and interact with Jesus. And in particular, it's really interesting to watch how the religious leaders, they're devout, they're outwardly so pristine. How it is that they interact with Jesus, his life and ministry. And, you know, and if you want to sum it up, here, here's how you could sum up their interaction with Jesus. It is full of controversy and conflict. They could not, st- I mean, they could not stand Jesus. That's kind of their, you know, basic reaction to him and response to him. And I want to try to answer the question, why is that? Why did they have such a hard time with Jesus? And I think this is one of the main answers to that question. That over and over throughout the book of Mark, as Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, he is looking at them and it's like, you know, he is poking and and pointing at little places of their hearts that they do not want to let go of and they do not want to address. So over and over throughout the book, Jesus is is interacting with these religious leaders and Pharisees and he's saying, this part of you right there, that part, that has got to change. There is something wrong with that part right there. And grace has got to get down into that and fix that and start working that out of you. So over and over, he's pointing these things out. And and there's really two options in these moments. They they could say, you're right, Jesus. You're right. We're wrong. And now we're going to realign our life in light of that. Or you can do, or they could do what they did throughout the book. They could dig their heels in and in absolute defiance of God say, we are not changing. And this is the reason that they're so upset at Jesus. He's, he keeps looking at them, showing them areas in their hearts that need to change, but they don't want to change. 
So let me just give you some examples throughout uh, the gospel of, of Mark. In chapter two, Jesus is healing a paralytic. And when he heals this paralytic, he doesn't say, hey, um, you're healed, so now start walking. Rather than saying that, he looks at this paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, in that moment, he is, he is saying so much more than, I'm a person who can heal other people. He's saying so much more than that. He is saying something massive in this moment. When he says, your sins are forgiven, he is saying, I'm God, and I actually have the power to forgive sin. And the Pharisees know that's what he's saying. The religious leaders know exactly what he is implying in that moment. But rather than looking at Jesus and saying, wow, this is the son of God. This is God in the flesh before us. Now we need to reorient our life around him. Rather than repenting of their wrong view of Jesus in that moment, they dig their heels in and they begin the plot to kill Jesus. So let you see another illustration of this in chapter three. In chapter three, there is a man that has entered the temple on the Sabbath. And this man has uh, got, a, got a problems. He needs to be healed. And so it's on the Sabbath and the religious leaders would not touch a man on the Sabbath. That is against their Sabbath laws to do any sort of healing like this, you know, on, on that particular day. So Jesus comes into the temple on this day, sees this man on the Sabbath day who needs to be touched and healed. And Jesus, without any sort of like, you know, social etiquette, he looks at this man and instantly heals him. And it drives the religious leaders crazy. Now think about what's happening in this moment. In this moment with Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, who went just cut directly against the grain of what the religious leaders would say about what's possible and what's doable on the Sabbath. He's looking at the religious leaders and he's saying something to them. This is bigger than just a man being healed. He's looking at the religious leaders and he's, and he's saying to them, there is a sense in which you have made a God out of something really good, the law. But, but there's a sense in which you, you are valuing and loving the law more than you value and love God, the God of the law. There's a sense in which you have made an idol out of the law. That you've, you've taken this really good thing and you have elevated it above God. Like you have taken the letter of the law and you know it so well, but you have totally missed the spirit of the God behind it. Now, in that moment, they had this beautiful opportunity. It's like the spirit of God is pressing on their conscience this has got to change. This is an area of dysfunction and sin in you. Now, we're inviting you to repent and realign your life in light of that. But rather than doing that, they dug their hills in. And in chapter 3, they literally began the plot to kill Jesus. Now, let's fast forward to Mark chapter 11, the chapter we're in this morning. In Mark 11, starting in verse 12, we covered this passage a few weeks ago. This is when Jesus, he, he sees this fig tree and uh, this fig tree has all the appearances of fruit. It's really leafy, but it has no fruit on it. And it's this picture of the religious leaders. They're very leafy in their religious activity. They're doing all of these religious sort of things. So they've got that down. But when he goes to inspect for fruit, he finds no fruit on the people of Israel, no fruit among the religious leaders. They've got all the religious activity no fruit, no genuine love of God, this deep and abiding love of God in their heart. That is strangely absent from them. And, and as an act of judgment on them, he curses this fig tree as a picture as to what he's going to do to the people of Israel, especially the religious leaders. Then he goes to the temple. And you remember this from a couple of weeks ago? He goes into the temple and uh, what should be a place where people meet with God, 
I mean, this is the place where they encounter the God who spoke and the universe was created. But instead of that, Jesus walks in on a religious circus. Like in the temple, he is visibly seeing like the expression of what all leaves but no fruit, no deep and genuine love of God looks like. It's the trivialization of God. It's not that they hate God. It's just that they have smashed God down to such a small and peripheral part of their life that they like him. They're just not going to put him like in the center and have their life revolve around him. So in this temple, Jesus goes crazy. This is Jesus unleashed in the temple. He begins to throw chairs in the temple. He begins to to turn over tables in the temple, all as an act of him saying to to the religious leaders, I am not pleased with your religious activity apart from fruit. I am not pleased with the way that you have trivialized God in your life. And I am seeking your repentance. I'm pleading with you to change. It's this moment where God's looking at them and he's pressing on them and saying, you have this great opportunity to change right now to repent, the grace of God to come in and and to motivate and animate change in your life. But rather than doing that, they dug their heels in and would hear none of it. Okay, now let me bring this into 21st century language. I want you to think about the moment, and this could come in a million different ways. The Spirit of God has a lot of different means to do this. It may come through um, you hearing a sermon. It may come through a podcast. It may come through a book that you've read. It may come through your spouse. It may come through a godly friend who's willing to have a tough conversation with you. But in one of the millions of ways that the Holy Spirit can do this, God comes to you, and he, he enters into your heart, and he puts a flashlight into your heart, and he says to you, that right there is wrong. That is sin. That needs to change. That this area in you right here, that that thing right there, we're going to address that. We're going to deal with that. We're going after that. Now, hear this. Hear what I'm about to say. You know, that moment when God does that for you and I, that feels like such a small moment in our life. The Holy Spirit comes in and gently begins to convict of sin to press on, that right there has to change. We've got to, we've got to deal with that right there. That fe- Listen to me. That feels like such a small moment in our life, but I want you to hear and see that this is the big moments in our life. These moments where God begins to do this. God begins to speak in these sort of ways. God begins to convict of sin. Now, in that moment, we have one of two options we can start to see that this is a grace from God. God is showing us where we have idolatry in our life, where we're honoring and loving and serving something above God. And we've got this beautiful opportunity in that moment when God begins to press and to convict of sin, to feel deep in our bones a brokenness over our sin, to turn from our sin in repentance and to cast all of our life back onto Jesus in faith. We've got that opportunity in that moment to do that. Or... Like the religious leaders, we can dig our heels in and in defiance to God say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to address that. I don't care what you say, this is staying here. And in that moment when we decide to dig our heels in in defiance against God, that is the moment where, I love how one pastor says it, we begin to play games with God. And now this is what's happening in the lives of the religious leaders. Now I want to show you how this game plays out. They have decided that, listen, we are not going to obey. 
So think about what's happened. Over and over and over again, Jesus has come to them and, and he started to poke on their life, saying, that area right there, we've got to address that and deal with that. This is what's happened in the temple. In the previous passage, he's come in and he's done just that. In the temple, he's saying, I'm not okay with this part of your life. I'm not, this is, we've got to see some change here. We've got to address this. You've got religious leaves, but no fruit. You've got God, he's just trivialized. He's pushed down and small in your life. And this has to be addressed. And they have said no to that. We're not going to address that. They begin to play games with God. Now, I want you to watch how, when they have started this, this idea of we're not going to obey, we're in defiance, we are not moving. I want you to see how they begin to justify this, how this game with God works. Look at it in verse 27. Two verses. We're going to spend all of our time this morning. 27 and 28. Here's what happens. They've just said we're not going to respond. I don't care what you've done in the temple, what you've you've pointed out in the temple. We're not going to respond. And this is what they do. Immediately following that, after digging in their hills, this this is what happens. Verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So we need to see in this passage what's happening in this moment. They have dug, the Holy Spirit has come. He's pressed on them. He's shown them an area in their life that needs changing, that needs to be dealt with. And they have dug their hills in. So so now rather than, than obeying Jesus, They're in open defiance. And to justify their disobedience, they begin to play what is one of the most common, you know, sort of games that Christians play, that people play in the religious circles. And we might call it the authority game. The authority game. Let me just kind of walk through how that would work out for you and I. It's got several expressions that we'll talk about this morning. But you could boil it down like this. When we decide that we're not going to obey, when we have dug our heels in, we are in defiance. We are not moving in this particular area. See, most of us don't have like the guts to like flip God off and run in the other direction. We're actually, because we grew up in the Bible, but we actually believe in a thing called hell, right? That we're kind of scared of. So, so we don't have the guts just to turn tail and run as hard as we can, right? So that's not how it plays out. We don't become an agnostic that just says, God has no authority in my life. I don't care about God. I don't, I don't want anything to do with God. We, we don't become that person. What we become in our culture so often is the person who will leave the little Christian fish, you know, the little sticker on the back of their car, all the while justifying in really subtle ways why it is that we are not going to obey God. So, so we'll leave the sticker on, like we've still got our foot in this thing, but we just begin to subtly justify why it is that we won't obey and how that so often plays out as we begin to, to redefine what the authority of God looks like in our life. We begin to, to play this game of authority. Does God really have the authority to say, I need to stop that or I need to obey here? Does God really have that sort of authority? We begin to play that game. Now, I want to work through three ways I think this so often comes out. And there's many ways that we could talk about. But I want to just apply this in, in three different ways. I so often see this authority game being played with people in our culture. When we decide we don't want to obey and we begin to play this game of authority. God, do you really have this sort of right and ownership of my life? Three different ways it plays out. Number one, first way. We might call it um, th- this game of like redefining Jesus. This authority game is played out. And just a complete redefinition of who God is in our life, who Jesus is in our life. And so just think about this moment where the Spirit of God is pressing on you and and calling for change in this particular area of your life. 
rather than repenting and, and forsaking this sin, declaring war on this sin, dragging it out into the light, and, and turning to God in faith, rather than doing that, rather than repenting, asking God to change us, rather than, rather than doing that, we began to try to change God. Are you seeing that? Like, like rather than us saying, in that moment, the Holy Spirit begins pressing on us, rather than looking up to God and saying, God, will you please in this moment shape me into the image of Jesus? We began to craft God into our image, into our likeness. We began to craft God and recreate a God, a mythical God, into being a God who would be just fine with this particular area of dysfunction and sin in our life, who has no problem with that in our life. We begin to recreate a God who will be just fine with our defiance. So it's this this complete redefinition of Jesus. And here is so often the phrase that gets attached to this redefining of Jesus. So often it comes in this statement or in this phrase. God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy, right? Okay, now here is the complication with this phrase. So hang with me here. I want you to think about what's happening here in this moment. So here's the problem. When I hear that phrase, God just wants me to be, you know, to be happy, the problem is there's so much truth in the middle of that. So I would want to first affirm that I actually believe that statement, that I'm actually all in on the idea of God is really concerned with our happiness and joy. I, I am unabashedly a Christian hedonist, a Christian pleasure seeker, and I am that because I think God actually invites us to be that. So let me just make sense of that. In John 6, Jesus looks at a crowd and he says to this crowd, I am the bread of life. And anyone who comes after me and like eats the bread that is me by putting your faith in me, anyone who does that, here's what you need to know about eating this bread and coming after this bread. You are never gonna be hungry again. That what God is saying in that moment is, you know those deep cravings that you have for joy and happiness? That deep craving is meant to lead you to me who can actually give you those things. So we could go to a John 4 where Jesus um, addresses this woman at the well. Do you remember this story? So there's this woman at the well, and she has lived a hard life of sin. And she is, like, getting this water out of the well, and Jesus comes up to her and basically says this. Um, you can drink that water out of that well all day long, but you're going to be thirsty again. Or you can come to me like the fountain of living water, and you, you can put your faith in me. And here's what you can know about that. You'll never be thirsty again. The deep aches of your heart will be satisfied in me. This is, this is Psalm 1611, where God says, come, you know, come, come to me. Put, put your faith in me, your hope in me. Make me your refuge. Here we, here's what you can know about me. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like God is inviting us into that. So in one sense, what, what that statement is saying is I completely agree with. God is inviting us into him, the source of all joy and happiness. God is asking us and inviting us right into the middle of that. But here is what I can't affirm about that statement. This is a big but here, right? I can't affirm what most other people mean by that statement. So I think there is like biblical legitimacy to that, but I don't think what most people mean by that statement is in any way, shape, or form biblical. Here's what most people mean by that statement. This idea of God would just want me to be happy. Most people in, in our you know, culture, when they say that, they are completely redefining who God is. 
They're saying, nope, I'm not taking the God of the Bible. I'm going to make my own little God who will be just fine with all of my sin and defiance. So what most people in our culture mean by this is that there will never be a moment in my life where God would actually call me to put my own little temporal desires to death in order to follow Jesus. That God would never call me to do something that would be hard for me, unnatural for me, not easy for me. God would never call me to do something that would not be fun for me. God would never call me to like do something like that where it would actually like call me to crucify myself, like take up my cross and actually follow him. God would never do that. And that is not right. That is not biblical. Maybe I could say it this way. And this, this would apply to every son and daughter to God. God constantly asks and God constantly requires of his followers the loss of temporal happiness for the sake of deep abiding and eternal happiness. I hear that. God constantly calls for and requires the loss of our temporal desires, the loss of our temporal happiness for the sake of a deeper, a more lasting happiness. But that is a, that's normal fare in the Christian life. That there are gonna be many moments as you follow Jesus where God says, I want to rip out of you all of those temporal desires. I, I, wanna put, I want you to put those things to death. So, so new desires, deeper desires, more lasting desires, eternal desires can grow right there in its place. That is normal fare for the Christian life. The, I, mean, I was just thinking about this, um, this last week in Mark chapter eight where when Jesus is defining what does it look like to be a disciple, here's how he defines that. It means that you're gonna be a person who is going to deny yourself. You're gonna be about that, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. That your life is gonna be full of those moments where your temporal desires, like all of your temporal little comforts in your life, that there's gonna be a stake driven right into those things and those things are gonna have to die in order for you to come and follow me. Now, we could give like example after example of this in the Bible. We could talk about Jonah. Do you remember his story? Uh, God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Israel's bitter enemy, you know, to Nineveh. I want you to go to them and I want you to announce in that city that God saves and they need to repent. Because God could even save them. And you remember what Jonah does? I, I don't like that, is what he basically says in response. I'm not going to do that. That this is a moment where God is calling Jonah. Obedience looks like to Jonah something that would cut directly against the grain of what he would want to do in his life. So we could talk about Jeremiah. We talked about him last week in kind of the, the, the part of that sermon last week. But we were talking about, man, how God just sent prophet after prophet to the people of Israel and they beat those guys to death. I mean, beaten and bruised. This was the prophets. This was their life. And so Jonah got, or, uh, Jeremiah, God calls him in his mother's womb, sends him to preach to the people of Israel. But it was a costly call, wasn't it? Our, our man, Jeremiah, he had a rough go at it. He was imprisoned. He was put in stocks. He was left for dead in pits. I mean, he had a rough go. Obedience for, Je- or for Jeremiah looked like him absolutely putting all of his temporal desires, all of those things to death. Or how about Paul in the New Testament? Um, again, Paul is one of those guys who he had a rough lot. 
Man, God called him to go plant churches and to do, be a part of that. And man, that was so costly to Paul. That, that cost him so many of his temporal comforts. And let me just give you a sampling of those. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a sampling of what sort of temporal comforts that were put to death in order for him to be obedient to Jesus. And let me just give you some of these. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. This will be on the screen for you. Listen to, to, the, to the things in Paul's life that happened. All of the comforts that were put to death as Jesus said, come and get me. Are there servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Now listen to what he went through in his life. In order to follow Jesus, the things he went through, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. I'm pretty sure if I got beat a time or two, I could count them. You know what I'm saying? Like I, Those are going to be vivid imageries in like my mind what happened there. And Paul's saying, it happened so many times, I've lost count of them. That, that's how many times it's gone down. Countless beatings and often near death. Verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... In danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches." There's a lot being put to death in Paul to follow Jesus, isn't there? There's a lot he is doing without. There's a lot of his desires in life that would be good desires that he never got to see come to fulfillment because he is following Jesus. Now, okay, I want to be careful here and make sure I'm really clear on this. I am not saying that following Jesus is like all doom and gloom, right? Like get your frown on because it's going to be all of that all of your life. That's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. That the, that the road of following Jesus, it's, it's paved with joy. But that road is lined with thorn after thorn, with difficult days, with a lot of denying self, with a lot of putting your temporal comforts to death. It is lined with a lot of those things. Maybe I could say it this way. That obedience to Jesus is always costly. That holiness is always hard. And obeying in those moments where it literally feels like it's going to absolutely crush you. Obeying in those moments is how God leads us to the, just the bottomless oceans of his joy. That's how he does it. Like the way we get the happiness that God would want us to have is through that painful road of obedience. Through putting to death a lot of our temporal comforts and temporal desires to get it. So, okay, let me, let me try to be really clear in what I'm trying to get at here and the point I'm trying to make. I am trying to cut right through the cultural myth that so many people have about God and about how life with God plays out. We live in a culture that absolutely worships the fulfillment of our own personal desires. Now, are you aware of that culturally? That we live in a culture who worships the fulfillment of our temporal desires. Like what I want right now wins the day. 
What I feel right now wins the day. What would make me happy right now wins the day. And here's the, here's the grid now that we look at God because we're worshiping our own temporal desires. Now we have this approach to God that is submitting God. Like no longer is God the authority of our life. Our temporal desires are the authority of our life. It's what wins the day. Now here's why I want you to be aware of that. If you are not careful, like you're influenced by this. Just know that. You are, you are greatly influenced by a culture who worships the fulfillment of our own personal desires. And if you're not careful, your grid that you're going to look at God at and what you're going to look at, listen to this phrase, doable obedience. Like obedience, you'll actually like, okay, God, I'm in for that. Like the grid that you're going to look at, like what is doable obedience in my life? That grid is going to be 100% shaped, not by the scriptures, not by what God is saying about our life and what he would want, but by the fulfillment of our own personal desires. Like what's going to make me happy in the moment? Now, and if that is you, if you're being ruled by that, if your view of God is not um, God is going to, going to call me to things that are going to run right across the grain of my temporal desires, no, no that's, that's not God. God is, he's always gonna call me to do the thing that's easy and natural. He would never call me to like put some things to death in me, like my desires to death. He'd never do that. If that's your view of God, I want you to hear what's happening there. There has been a subtle shift of authority in your life. It's no longer God as in the place of authority and you underneath God. Now it's you in the place of authority and God is underneath you. It's no longer looking to God as the one that's going to give the commands to our life. It's now God looking up at us and us giving the commands to God in our life. There's been this subtle shift of authority. We've started to play the authority game to justify our disobedience and our hills are dug in and we are not budging. We have made God like fit our image and our wants. We've redefined God to fit like what we want to do in life. Okay, now let me just press this one step further and we'll, we'll move on here. When Jesus says in Mark 8 that part of what it means to follow me is you denying yourself and taking up your cross, part of what Jesus is saying in that passage is your desires are still, for the rest of your life on this earth, your desires are going to be soaked with sin and a lot of selfish ambition. And part of what it means to deny yourself is to renounce the authority of your life, like that you own you, and to acknowledge that, that now, no, God owns you. That Jesus is in like the command like post of your life. That, that, that's his role in your life. Part of what it means to deny self is to know that part of what it means to follow God is you're going to put to death your temporal desires in order to go after God. And here's what it looks like to deny yourself. And, and this is a consistent thing that's going to happen throughout the life of a Christian. What it means to deny yourself is that there are going to be a lot of moments in your life, in the moments of you wanting to do things, where you're going to side with Jesus against yourself. Now hear that. This is a big thing that you need to know about the Christian life. That there's going to be a million moments where your temporal desires are going to go directly contrary to what God would want in your life. That, that God's going to have desires for your life and you're going to have desires for your life. And those things are going to be at odds with one another. And in that moment, here's what it means to deny yourself. That you side with Jesus and what he wants for your life, and you side against what you want. So you're with Jesus and you're against you. Do you see how that works? That this is a normal, this is normal fare for the Christian life. 
This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And here's the great news. As you side against yourself and with Jesus, that is the painful path of obedience that leads to the bottomless ocean of God's joy. That's where you find it. You don't find it in siding against Jesus and with yourself. How God walks us into the joy that he would want for us is us siding against ourselves when our desires run contrary to Jesus and us siding with Jesus. So can I just ask you, are you experiencing that in your life? That, that those painful moments where God presses on you and you don't really like that pressing. You know what I'm saying? That moment where you have desires and you really want to live in your desires over here. But God is saying, nope, those are contrary to what I want for you. Are you experiencing those painful moments where you are having to say, I am siding with Jesus and not my desires? Like if you want a picture of this, this is uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that picture? Where this is the night Jesus is going to be betrayed. The next day he's going to be crucified. And he looks up to his father and he says, if there is any way other than the cross that this thing can play out, let's do that. It's Jesus saying, I have a desire, and that desire is to not go, like, be crucified on a cross. But do you remember how he ends that prayer? He says, but not my will, but yours. That is Jesus saying, I have this desire, but I am siding with you against my desire. I I am siding with you against what's competing with you. I mean, I'm just asking you, are you experiencing that in your life? where you are having to put to death what you want in order to get what God wants for you, in order to run after what God wants. Now, let me just kind of tie this back together. If that is not happening in your life, here is what's happening with you. You have begun the authority game. You are redefining God. You you have recreated a God in your mind who would would just want your desires in your life, your temporal, sin-filled desires, who would never go contrary to that. And if you've done that, there's been a subtle shift of authority in your life. It's no longer God in authority and you under him. It's now you in authority and God underneath you. This is one of the ways, this redefining of Jesus that the authority game is played. Here's the second second way it plays itself out. It's not just in redefining Jesus, but in redefining grace. In redefining grace. So we take what has been a traditional and historic and biblical view of what grace is. Grace is the unmerited. In other words, we didn't earn it. Grace is the ill-deserved. It's not only that we didn't earn it, but we actually earned the opposite of grace. We actually earned wrath from God, right? So it's this unmerited and ill-deserved favor of God on our lives. Grace is expressed in the Bible most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, that we are in our rebellion and sin. And in the middle of our rebellion and sin, we've still got our swords drawn against God. God would send his son to meet us in the middle of that, live a perfect life in our place, die on the cross for our sin, raised from the dead on the third day. And this is all while we're still in our rebellion. So that all those who put their faith in Jesus are reconciled to Jesus. Like we're, we're adopted into the family of God. We're made sons and daughters of God. God sends his Holy Spirit into our life to take up residence in us, to empower us for mission and for service and a love of God. Okay, this is grace in the Bible, that God would meet us in the middle of our sin, not just save us from his wrath, but start the process of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. That's grace. And somehow, in the midst of redefining grace and twisting grace, here's what happens. Rather than seeing biblical grace like that, 
Grace becomes this, this idea of we can just live however we want and God just going to be okay with that. That God will be just fine. God is gracious. I mean, come on. Right? It's, it's that view. It's this view that, that God would say that, no, no, grace is just like what God uses to save us from the penalty of sin. And grace is that. Grace is God saving us from the penalty of sin. But it's not just that. Grace is also God's means to rescue us right now today in our life from the present power of sin in our life. It's not just a grace that forgives us. It's also a grace that changes us and transforms us. That's grace. It's not just one of those. It's both of those. Grace in the Bible. And listen, we want to preach grace around here. The free, unmerited grace of God, the abundant grace of God, the relentless and untiring grace of God. We want to preach that and preach that every week around here. But I don't want you to be confused in thinking that grace means you have an excuse to sin in any old way you want. That's not grace. It was interesting. Here recently, we took our staff to this little mini conference, kind of a half-day conference. And one of the guys preaching there that day made an interesting observation. He was kind of talking about this idea. And he said, you know, I I think we've got a culture full of people who call themselves Christians that I would call, this is using his language, that I would call vampire Christians. Vampire Christians. And here's how he defined a vampire Christian. It's a person who just wants the blood of Jesus, just not his life. Like, it's a person who, and when they think of Jesus, they get excited about the fact that their sins are forgiven. But when they think about actually living like Jesus, when they think about being conformed into the image of Jesus, we don't like that part of Jesus. We're good with the blood part. We're just not good with the life part. Maybe you could say it this way. I think we have a a culture full of people who love the idea of taking all of our sin and saying, Jesus, it's all yours. But when we think about taking our life, our money, our marriage, our time, our kids, when we think about taking our life and saying, God, it's yours too, that's not so good for us. And this is what, this is what grace does. I want you to see this. Grace is not just, it is this, but it's not just a forgiveness for your sin. Grace is also what God gives us to transform us in the midst of our sin. Like maybe one passage that would help um, just clarify this for us is Titus chapter 2. This is Paul talking, um, talking here, and here's what he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Now listen to, to how grace operates. Here, here's how he says it. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now this is the grace of God primarily in Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, right? That grace That grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now look at verse 12. I want you to see what that grace from God accomplishes. For the grace of God has appeared, here's what it's doing in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Do you see that? That grace is not, it's not just a vampire thing here, right? It's not just a grace that says you can be forgiven for your sin. That same grace that saves us in the midst of our sin is the very same grace that transforms us in our sin. It's the very same grace. The grace from God does both of those things. And, And here's the fear I have for a lot of us. Like when we start to play this authority game where we dig our heels in and we just need a good reason why it's okay to do that. So often what people do is they get a distorted view of grace that says, 
it's an excuse to live however we want to live, and God will just kind of be okay with that. And if, and if our mindset toward God and grace is that, it shows that we have completely missed the point of grace. Maybe just to illustrate this, I love the story of the old, uh, of the old northern guy. This is back in Civil War days who came into the south into a slave auction, and he bought a young slave girl. He purchased her freedom, and they began to walk back into the north. And when they got there, he looked at her and said, here's the great news, you're free. And she looks back up at him and says, you mean I'm free to like do whatever I want to do? And he says, yeah, you're free to do whatever you want to do. You mean I'm free to become anything I want to become? Yeah, yeah, you're free to become anything you want to become. You mean I'm free to say anything I want to say? Yeah, you're free to say anything you want to say. You mean I'm free to go anywhere I want to go? Yeah, you're free to go anywhere you want to go. And she looks back at him and says, well, I'll go with you. Now, that is what grace does in us. It is as if God has come to the slave auction, purchased us out of slavery, freed us to be and do anything. And grace produces in us a want to follow after Jesus. And if the sort of grace that you have is not producing that want, you need to question if you've really gotten grace. Like grace does both of those. See, like, okay, put it in the big picture here. We're saying if you have dug your hills in and you are playing the authority game with Jesus, I'm not going to obey. I just need a reason not to. I just need to justify it with something. And you're redefining grace to make your sin okay. It is showing you that the authority in your life has shifted. It's no longer God up here and you below God. It's you up here and God is now fit into your mold. It's redefining grace. And here's the third one. And we'll kind of finish with this one. So it's redefining Jesus. This authority game plays out in a redefining of Jesus, a redefining of grace, and thirdly, a redefining of obedience. A redefining of obedience. So let let me try to make sense of this and explain it, and then I'll show you a text that kind of illustrates it. But I want you to picture the scene in your life where the Holy Spirit comes to you and presses on something. Like that particular thing in you, that that right there, we're going to deal with that. We're going to go after that. Grace is about to get after that thing in your life. Picture that moment. And now your response to God in that moment being, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't think I want to deal with that thing yet. And God, seriously, this thing right here, that is not a very big deal. In the grand scheme of things, there are bigger fish to fry in my life. This is not a big deal. We begin to convince ourselves that this thing that God's pressing on, this thing that God wants traction in, that is a minor thing in, in the big, you know, picture of our life. But so, so God, rather than getting after this minor thing, what I'll do instead is I'll go and I'll get real serious about these things over here. God, tomorrow I'll wake up and I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow. And I'll even get up 30 minutes early to do it. God, I'll start serving tomorrow. God, we'll get our life in good community at, you know, at our church. We'll be known. We'll get all of that working tomorrow. God, we'll get on mission. We'll start praying for people in our neighborhood. God, I'm not going to do this, but instead of doing that, I'll make up for it by doing these things over here. Now, here's the crazy thing about this, that little scenario right there. That is so in this room in a million ways that most of us are not even aware of. 
God comes to us and says, here's the issue. But because we don't want to deal with that issue, we convince ourselves that that thing is not a big deal. And rather than dealing with that, we'll go do all of these things over here to make up for not dealing with that. Okay, now I want to give you just a, one play out of this in the Bible and one, uh, one place that you see this. You remember Saul, King Saul in, in the Bible, um, Old Testament? In 1 Samuel 15, there's this really interesting chapter where God comes to Saul and says, Saul, you see that village over there? I want the entire thing destroyed. You don't keep a single animal out of that village. You don't keep a single anything. It's all gone when you, know, when you finish there. And so Saul goes and you know, they, they do the whole thing. But rather than destroying the whole village, he keeps some of the best animals. Some of the most pristine animals. He keeps them. And Saul, here's his mindset. It's so interesting. When, when Samuel confronts him, here's what he says. Samuel, I know that God said to devote all to destruction, but we're not going to do that. I kind of feared the people a little bit, but here's what I've done. Instead of doing what God said to do, here's what I've done. I've actually kept the best of the livestock, and I'm bringing them back, and we're going to sacrifice the best of them to God. Surely he'll be okay with that, right? I'm not going to do this, but I'm going I'm to bring all of those things that, that, that you know, God said put to to death, I'm going to bring all of those back and we're going, to, we're going to sacrifice all of these things to the God who actually said put them to death. That's what we'll do. Now I want you to see how Samuel, speaking for God, addresses Saul. Listen to how it goes. This will be on the screen for you. This idea of, you know, I know God's pressing on this, but we're not going to do this, but instead we'll kind of make up for it by doing that. Here's how Samuel addresses Saul. Has the, has the Lord as great to light in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You see that? God is saying, seriously, do you think I really would delight more in your disobedience over here than I would in just you being obedient to start with? He goes on. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see that? God is saying, I am not interested in the 15 ways you want to make up for not doing the one thing that I'm calling you to do. I am not interested. Can you imagine how that would go around your home if that's how your kids operated? I, I just picture this scene. I was thinking about this last night of me looking at one of my kids and saying, hey, uh, you know that room that's a disaster? Why don't you go clean that room up? And one of my kids looking at me and saying, uh, you know, that's a good idea. I like the idea but rather than doing that, I'm going to go do some homework instead. I'm going to do what you say. I think I've got a better idea. You see how in that moment they have totally redefined everything? They've, they've totally put obedience in their court, not in God's court. Or my court, my house, right? They've totally redefined everything. It's obedience on their terms. And God is saying, I am not interested in obedience on your terms. Obedience happens on my terms. And when I come and I begin to press on these particular issues, I'm not looking for you to make up for it by being obedient in 10 other ways. I'm looking for us to deal with that thing that I want you to address. That's what I'm after. Now, let me uh, finish the passage and then we're done. So I want you to go back here, look at verse 29 and, and on. So you've got these, these religious leaders who have no intention of obeying God. And to justify their disobedience, they play the authority game. They're redefining everything. And then look at what Jesus says in response in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven 
or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, and you see that little, that little dash there? It's like a pregnant pause happening. It's like a, uh-oh, what, you know, let's just say on that for a second. And then they go on. Here's the commentary on what they're thinking. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was, a, was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, in that moment, Jesus is exposing their heart. That at the end of the day, they have no, they don't care about who's in authority. They're just playing the authority game. They're redefining everything so that they will be okay in their disobedience and defiance against God. So let me just end by, by pressing this question into us. Who is the authority of your life? Who, who has that place in your life? I mean, is that authority game working itself out where God would come to you and begin to press on areas of your life that, listen, they need to change. And that is such a grace from God. These are the, they feel small to us, but these are the big moments of our life where God comes to us in grace, showing us areas of our life that are off, that are marked and soaked with sin, that need repentance, that need to be realigned with reality and around God, right? When God comes to us, what is your response in that moment? Is there a redefining of grace to kind of make your sin okay? Is, is there this redefining of Jesus? You've got a Jesus who would, who would never call you to do things that would run contrary to how you feel in the moment. Is there this bartering with God? Like rather than doing the one thing he's asking you to do, that you'll do 10 others to make up for the one thing you're disobedient in? Like, is that happening in your life? Are you playing those sorts of games in your life with God? Now, I want to give you a second just to, to consider the question. What is it that God is pressing on in your life? And here's the deal. My assumption in this room, because we're all sinners in this room, my assumption is that every one of us have something right now that the Spirit of God in your life is pressing on. Now, here's the danger for some of us. Some of us have gotten so numb to the Spirit's voice in our life that we don't even know what that is right now. So I want to give you some time to think about that. What are these areas in your life where God is pressing, where God is pursuing, where God is saying, this right here, we've got to get traction here. We've got to deal with this thing right here. And I just wrote a few potential downs just to, to maybe get you thinking about them. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's bitterness and resentment that's growing out of that. Maybe it's severed relationships that you're just okay with them being severed. Maybe it's the way you deal with money. That the way you deal with money, you can't get past you with money. That greed just marks the way you go about it. No, no generosity in your life. Maybe it's immorality. That could be everything from pornography to same gender attraction. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe there's cracks in your marriage and you are 100% aware of those cracks. God is pressing on you to pursue reconciliation and help for those, but you're just, you're dug in. Hit hills in the ground. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's anger and just a lack of patience with people. Maybe it's your words. Rather than building people up around you, they just tear people down. Maybe it's apathy. There's just a lack of zeal for God in your life. Maybe it's racism. Maybe it's kindness. There, there, that kindness is just strangely absent and missing from your life. Like Christian love is just not there. Maybe it's the need in your life to move toward good community where you're actually known. And you've got people who know you in your life who are thinking about and praying for you in your life. 
Maybe it's a lack of mission, a lack of praying for people who are, are far from God, a lack of concern for people who are far from God. Maybe it's prayerlessness. But what I'm pleading with, and you just need to fill in your blank, what I'm pleading with you about this morning is you need to respond to God. Like you've got one of two options. You can dig your heels in and begin to play games with God. And these are bad games to play. You always lose in the end of this game. You can dig your heels in or you can actually respond by repentance, by acknowledging your sin, by acknowledging what it is that God is pointing out in your life. And it's not just a mistake, it's sin, right? So we acknowledge that and we begin to declare war on those things. We begin to be aggressive, asking God to help us feel about this sin like he feels about it. And then we run to Jesus in faith, throwing our life upon him. That's the response that God's after. That's the response that leads to the the bottomless ocean of God's joy. I want to invite you into that this morning. Wherever those areas of your life are, for you to respond like that to God. Can we pray together? And I just want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press down into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful and and for you to think about, what, what are these areas where God is pressing, but you're just refusing? You, you've got your heels dug in, and you won't budge. Maybe you're here, and you have never put your faith in Jesus. And and maybe what God is saying this morning, the big thing that God is pressing in your heart this morning is that you need for, you know, for the first time to turn to Jesus in faith, to repent of your sin, to to own your sin, to, to declare war on your sin, and for the first time to look up at God and receive forgiving grace, to throw your life upon God and to say, God, here I am, this is all of me, and I am trusting Jesus to cover my sin and to empower a new way of living. And the great news of the gospel is that in that moment, God saves people. That God rescues them from wrath, puts the Holy Spirit in them, calls them sons and daughters, empowers a new way of operating and living. And so maybe that's you. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you right now to cry out to God. You can use your own words for that, to cry out to God and, and communicate that to him. And if that's you, to make sure you grab one of those guest cards under your seat and to check that box about responding to Jesus. And we'd love to follow up with you this week on that. And for Christians in the room, people who have put their faith in Jesus or in the family of God, and what a wonderful morning for you to consider. Where are these areas in your life where, where repentance needs to take place, where God is saying, this needs to be dealt with? And what would it look like for you this morning to to begin to open your hand to those things and to allow the Spirit of God to begin to work transformation into you, transforming grace. So God, I pray that you would help us in this. God, that you would would be kind enough to show us those areas. And for those of us who have been resistant for years and years and years to the point that we can't even feel your presence in our life convicting us of sin. God, I pray that you would be gracious to to poke through that and to push through that and to show us these areas today. And God, that you would produce across this room 
repentance. Individually, in this room, repentance in these areas. So God, by your grace, might you do that? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.